Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hello, and welcome back to Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brandon Tinsley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And if Carla Rae Jepsen is listening to this, my deepest, gayest apologies for missing you at the All Things Go Festival the other weekend. I'm sure Carly Rae Jepsen is listening to this. <laughs> we can only dream. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender. And I am currently taking recommendations on how to wear a sack dress without looking like an actual sack of root vegetables. And I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Slate's Outward section. And I'm still traumatized by the violence that was Bradley Cooper wiping off Lady Gaga's drag makeup. Ditto. Yeah. That movie's awful. <laughs> so it's October. Happy LGBTQ History Month, guys. Thank you. When this show goes up, we'll also be launching a special series of more than a dozen pieces in Outward about radicalism and queer life today. So check that out with your eyeballs. On the podcast, we're going to be hearing about how some of our most important queer ancestors became radicalized with the help of our friends at the Making Gay History podcast. And we're going to chat with a few present-day radicals who are part of the movement to reclaim pride. We'll also dig into what radicalism even means via a little game, and we'll have our usual updates to the gay agenda. But first, it's time for our regular assessment of pride and provocations. Brandon, which side of the PNP divide are you on this month? So, for the first time on air, I'm provoked. <laughs> oh I just You're usually time. so proud. I know, I know. By a new policy from the Trump administration. I'm sure it's no big surprise. But the policy uh, that went into effect earlier this month that would um, impose uh, restrictions on the partners of same-sex couple uh, diplomats. Um, so, essentially, it would make it so that, I think, by the end of the year, they would either have to get married or leave the country. And for me, I think perhaps what has been perhaps equally as demoralizing and galling as the policy itself is some people's reaction to it. Some people who are very much just like, well, we are able to get married in the United States. Like, it's very easy for people to get married. Why don't they just get married? And, you know, for me, it was just it shows this enormously deep ignorance of the fact that just because there's this institutional symmetry in the United States doesn't mean that it exists in other countries. Like in, you know, most other countries, you actually can't get uh, same sex couples can't get married. Mm -hmm. And the the frustrating thing is how 
ephemeral, I guess, uh, mainstream memory is. You know, it was just a few years ago, literally just a few years ago, that people in the U.S. could, uh, same-sex couples uh, could get married. And the fact that uh, I think more people aren't sort of disgusted by this to me is uh, pretty, pretty saddening. But that's my provocation for this month. Uh, Christina, yeah. what do you have? I mean, I'm also provoked by that. But uh, I saw A Star is Born last week. Controversy. And <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I can feel Brian already sweating <laughs> from all the way in New York. So honestly, I really enjoyed it. And I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop. But I was provoked by mm-hmm. many aspects of the film, several of which I discussed on last week's episode of The Waves. Give that a listen if you'd like. But the one I want to bring up here is the role of gays and drag in the movie, which is the role that they play is pretty much as decoration and as tools for heterosexual self-discovery and self-fulfillment. So the white and straight couple at the center of the film, played by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, meet and start to fall in love at a gay bar. And then later in the movie, they get married in a black church. Oh, God. <laughs> so the uh, the entire arc of their relationship is marked by these milestones of uh, invading and co-opting these spaces that are not for them. And, and everyone's just so welcoming and accommodating and encouraging of them. And then beyond that, the fact that, you know, this straight guy sort of stumbles into a gay bar on drag night and sees the one cis woman who's there and she happens to be straight and happens to want to fuck him is like every straight guy's fantasy. And I hate that this movie makes that out to be a possibility because just the other day I was at a lesbian bar here in D.C. and there were these two cis dudes who at least one of them was straight and I sort of went up to them to be like, hey, what are you guys doing here? Like, <laughs> trying to make them just a little uncomfortable because that's the role that I play at lesbian bars. And one of them was like, oh, so like, do you like girls? And I was like, I'm literally at a lesbian bar. Like, <laughs> what the fuck do you think I'm doing here? You know, that's not the question you should be asking me. And I don't want anybody to watch A Star is Born and think that that they're going to go into a gay bar on drag night, whether it's, you know, a gay bar for dudes or a lesbian bar, and then come out with the romance of their life. And I also read a profile of Bradley Cooper uh, where he talks about this movie, and he basically said that he wanted that scene to be in a gay bar so that he could telegraph something important about his values, that although he was sort of this, like, country rugged rocker, he wasn't homophobic, and he loved gay people. In fact, he goes in, and he's like, is this a drag bar? And the fact that 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 character would know the word, the phrase (laughs) drag bar seemed so unrealistic to me, and the fact that he didn't feel uncomfortable at all and no one made him feel uncomfortable— also seemed unrealistic and provoking to me. Super provoking. Uh, I I would just like to plug here that I wrote a piece about being provoked in the same way that Christina was yes. uh, on Slate.com <laughs> that we'll put on the show page. But yes, this that film, the film is ridiculous in many ways, but the, its use of uh, of queer folks and sort of queer culture is is particularly galling if you're not swept away by the romance of it all. So I actually have, I think I've been provoked every week or every month so far. 
You have. You have. I have pride this time, uh, which I'm excited about. Last time we played a game about queer culture, and one of the questions that I posed to the group was about uh, acronyms on Grindr. Uh, and so I gave four different choices, one of which was fake. The one of which was uh, the one that was fake that or that I thought was fake uh, was CBT, which I had <laughs> thought meant uh, in my mind cognitive behavioral therapy, which is not something people talk about on Grindr a lot. I'm very proud to say that many of our <laughs> listeners, many people who have my phone number, uh, multiple, <laughs> multiple, like I'm talking like at least 10 people, maybe more, uh, reached out to me to let me know that indeed CBT means something else. Uh, and that is <laughs> cock and ball torture. So I do want to just sort of apologize quickly to the cock and ball torture <laughs> community uh, for erasing that that term in, in my uh, flippant game. And I want to be express pride uh, in that community and in our larger community for uh, informing me about that and for uh, really owning uh, y'all's kink because that sounds great. Not for me. Yeah, but that sounds great. You cannot get anything past <laughs> Queers in the yeah. cock and ball torture community. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm talking like after midnight text, like how could you have said this? <laughs> uh, so, so I'm sorry. Uh, cock and ball torture uh, unite and be awesome and continue making me proud. Cool. I just got to say, I'm provoked this month uh, oh. by the Met Gala. Yes. And mm-hmm. why are you provoked, Daniel? Because the theme is camp. And that's insane to make as a theme. Also, like that the leaders of th- this are Lady Gaga, Harry Styles, and Serena Williams. Like, get out. Straight um, people. Exactly. <laughs> but also, and I said this like on Slack, but my problem with it is that like camp is an implicit part of the Met ball like that's kind of what it exists to be mm-hmm. and yes. so to make it explicit kind of ruins any potential mm-hmm. that anyone has and it's just going to be a lot of failures walking by yeah i think we should i think we should like record a segment at that at, and i don't think we're getting invited to the Met gala but uh, <laughs> at least at the exhibition that's associated with it that's going to be about camp because i i have a lot of Oh, I would love like a special episode dubious about feelings that. about that too. So I think, yeah, I think I think we might we might try to do that. Cool. In, anyway, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thanks. Gosh, so many, so much pride and provocation this, uh, yeah. this month. I love it. So today, I am very proud that we are talking about radicalism because the debates around radicalism I find extremely compelling uh, in terms of the LGBT community and discussion right now. So many of the clashes and controversies in contemporary queer communities revolve around these questions of how radical our movements should be and how much to value assimilation over subversion and whether queer joy and queer art can and should be inherently political. And these conversations about respectability politics and capitalism and sex have been happening since the very beginning of the gay civil rights movement and before, I'm sure. And Every generation has had its own series of reckonings. So to kick off our discussion today, we have a little collection of old clips from interviews with leaders and activists in the gay rights movement, all talking about the moments they felt themselves becoming radicalized. We'll hear from Sylvia Rivera, Frank Kameny, Joyce Hunter, Jean and Morty Manford, Vito Russo, Ellen DeGeneres, Perry Watkins, Marsha P. Johnson, and Randy Wicker. The clips come from the interview archives of author and oral historian Eric Marcus, whose tapes you can now hear on the brilliant podcast Making Gay History, whose new season begins October 25th. Take a listen. The people who beat you up had a motive. Yeah, they, I think they wanted to bust my face, which, uh, well, they, they half did. But their motive was not 
not to make me this better activist, no, or this person who would go on to make some real change. No, I'm sure that was not in there. I think they wanted to put me six feet under. They send an activist really on her way. But why? But why? All of a sudden, you just feel this. Everybody's looking at each other. But why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this? And the nickels, the dimes, the pennies, and the quarters started flying. To be there, you know, it's just like, Oh, it was so beautiful. I just like, you know, it's like... Was it exciting? Oh, it was so exciting. It was like, ow, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're, we're fucking their nerves. The cops were, you know, they, they just panicked. What the, what the government essentially did is they turned an intellectual bookish yeah. mm -hmm. into a radical. Thank you for using that word. I have had cases over the years that I've handled of meek, mild, unassertive, unaggressive people who just want to go about doing their work, and suddenly they are hit hard, they are trampled upon with the hobnailed boots, and suddenly it does exactly that, it radicalizes them, and off they go marching militantly. There are penis jokes on just about every every single show. You can see violence. You can see on and any you know one-hour drama, somebody killing somebody else. But you can't see someone telling or holding hands or being with somebody that. So that that was like that put me through the roof. You know. So I, I had meetings and I I became trouble. I'm an easygoing person. I'm very easy to get along with. Um, and suddenly I became somebody who was going to stand up and say, that's not right. And they didn't want that, especially from a woman, especially from a gay woman. And I was just too much trouble. Did you have any hesitation about writing this no, letter? No, I didn't. I mean, I was furious. Mm -hmm. Why were you furious? What, 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 what right had they got to assault my son and others? And uh, why didn't the police protect them? I guess it was the first time a mother ever sat down and said, yes, I have a homosexual child. Were you hesitant at all about saying no. that? No, I didn't even think about it. And I was amazed that Morty told me that it received such wide notice from that he had had so many calls at the time. Were you one of those that got in the chorus lines and kicked their heels up at the police? Like, like, uh, Ziegfeld Folly Girls? Or? Oh, no. No, we were too busy throwing over cars and screaming in the middle of the street because we were so upset because they closed that place. What were you screaming in the street? Huh? What did you say to the police? We just were saying no more police brutality and, oh, uh, we had enough of, uh, police harassment in the village and other places. It wasn't until maybe a few months later, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just July, and there was a bar on 10th Street in a basement called the Snake Pit. They raided the Snake Pit. Among the customers arrested was an Argentinian national, and Diego Vinales was here on a visa, and he was afraid that if it came out that he was gay, he would be deported. And he jumped from the second floor of the police station window on 10th Street to try to escape and landed on a spike fence and they had to bring acetylene torches to cut him off. And he was brought to St. Vincent's Hospital in critical condition at the edge of death for like three days. He eventually lived, by the way, and went back to Argentina. I was on my way home from work and I passed St. Vincent's. There was a candlelight vigil and I remember being handed a leaflet. And the leaflet said, 
No matter how you look at it, Diego Vinales was pushed. And that's when I put two and two together, when I realized the political impact of a social event. That in fact, he was pushed from that window. He was pushed by society. That if he didn't have to be so scared of being deported, he wouldn't have jumped. And so for the first time, the organized response reached me on a gut level. And that was the following Thursday when I went to my first Gay Activist Alliance meeting. I have chills right now after hearing that. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to hear these specific moments uh, where all of those super important, you know, LGBT ancestors uh, became radical and like, and sort of had a, you know, got a political consciousness or, or, um, you know, started to think about how they would do their activism. It's pretty great to hear that. Yeah. And I especially like thinking about, or I like looking through LGBTQ radicalism through the lens of immigration and migration. And I mean, that last clip we heard was really moving to me because of that. And because of what you were provoked by Brandon, Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, partners of diplomats who, you know, generally have probably a fair degree of privilege in their own countries, but nevertheless are are preparing to possibly be kicked out of the U.S. I think that's another reason why uh, marriage equality felt radical to me, because I know that there are a lot of people who weren't able to get citizenship because uh, they weren't from the U.S. and their partners were gay and they weren't able to get married. And and that is a venue for citizenship or a vector of citizenship for so many people. Yeah. And I, I think in that vein, Christina, one thing that jumped out to me is how those clips sort of take away the sort of performative glamour we often attach to radicalism i think Mm -hmm. especially when you're farther removed from you know kind of like the peak uh very sort of violent uh, gay civil rights that it's easy to kind of just view radicalism in terms of like oh something is more virtuous like being more radical means being more virtuous or being Mm -hmm. more moral um and for you know a lot of the people in the clips it wasn't that's not what was motivating them it was actual bodily physical harm and it was anything but sort of oh, this looks great, or this is the right thing to do, or this is the thing that like will make me appear sort of holier than thou, more radical than thou, than other people. And I uh, thought those clips did a great job of putting that into context. Yeah, it was about survival. Mm-hmm. I loved hearing from Ellen DeGeneres in there. I love to hear her talk about it because to me, she is like one of the least radical figures in in queer pop culture right now. And I mean, she's earned the right to be that. And I think Possibly she's that's radical in her own way. The mm-hmm. fact that she's able to be this incredibly approachable and lovable figure that enters millions of Americans' living rooms every day. <laughs> On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. So today, the nexus of a lot of disagreement about LGBTQ radicalism comes from the annual Pride festivities, which in many cities are run by white cis men who have turned community celebrations of diversity and resilience into what amounts to 
giant vehicles for corporate advertising and whitewashing or pinkwashing of local law enforcement. So here to parse the activism around pride we've been seeing over the past couple of years is Angela Peoples, who was one of the organizers behind DC's No Justice, No Pride and the founder and principal strategist of Ms. Peoples' team. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, we've also got Brandon Quickie, an organizer with New York City's Reclaim Pride Coalition. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, so my first question is for you, Angela. How did you come to decide that what DC Pride is now is not what Pride should be about? So the first thing I'll say is that it wasn't just me. I did not come to that understanding on my own. At the beginning of organizing the uh, campaign against to to disrupt capital pride we um we looked at um one of the the areas where we saw was a real glaring challenge was how um black and brown folks especially um black trans folks felt um not safe and not welcome at and pride celebrations mostly because of the presence of or for lar- in large part i should say because of the presence of police we're in these conversations talking about what we needed to do or what we could do to intervene and really just talked about like uh one of our our, our staff members at the time Yersaya Redondo really talked about his his experience of having the police at pride his, his first pride in Arizona and feeling like it wasn't for them um and so that was really part of the inception of the campaign um, to get the police out of pride. And then it really expanded to thinking about other ways that other institutions in our country and our culture are harmful to LGBTQ people, but then are also being propped up at pride celebrations like banks, like here in D.C. I don't know if this is true in other places, but here in D.C. we have quite a few representations from military contractors. And so the military industrial complex is really heavily represented in D.C., which is just terrifying. I'm going to just jump in there to say that in 2017, which was the Capital Pride protest that I participated in with Angela and others, the Lockheed Martin, you know, we had set up this sort of blockade of the parade as the Lockheed Martin float rounded the corner. And we didn't know what the float was going to look like. I had seen it as previous floats, rainbows, you know, a lot of employees marching around and it turned the corner and there was literally a model of a drone on the float. <laughs> oh my wow. God. And I want to say some other yeah, weaponry. It, like, it looks like, like a, a plane, like a, like a military plane or something. It's like, uh. And at that point, that? I was like, this is kind of great. This is is like a great visual. You know, they're not even trying to hide it right Mm -hmm. now. Right. Right. And the police march in their uniforms. And also there were years where the FBI was recruiting people at Pride. And it's just like, how are we missing the history and the context and the, the, and also the present moment, our experiences of so many of our people that are being victimized and, and, uh, brutalized by the institution, by these institutions are then also being forced to sort of, um, be in a place of joy and, and safety and celebration alongside them. It just doesn't make sense. And it really does point out and make clear, especially when you, when you ask the, when we ask Capital Pride or when you ask the HRCs or these other, um, organizations, like, will you not support these groups? This is how, you know, this is what it means when you have the police or other corporations in the, in our, in your events, when they are so, uh, quick to reject that idea reaction. It really shows who these celebrations are, are actually for. Brandon, mm-hmm. I see you nodding your head a lot along, <laughs> uh, in New York yes. here, uh, along with what Angela was saying. Do you want to talk about your journey to this activism and, and what you're nodding your head about? <laughs> sure. Well, we we had lo- noticed a lot of the same things in New York. Our efforts really started probably uh, two years ago in 2017 with a bunch of LGBT activists who 
became really energized and angered after Trump's election and really wanted the next Pride Parade in New York to, you know, make a very vocal and political statement um, against Trump. And last year, at the end of last year, um, a bunch of the same uh, activists came together with a lot of new activists and um, kind of wanted to reinstitute or solidify that kind of resistance contingent approach to the Pride in New York. Very early on, we were met with a lot of pushback from Heritage of Pride. Um, They did not want to give us this uh, resistance contingent that had uh, marched the year before. Um, We, you know, also were concerned for the safety of our people and the safety of activists in general at that parade. It is barricaded up and down the parade. There are police all over. There are police basically at every entry point to the parade. So we definitely wanted to call that out and and make sure that we could try to try to see if we could get the, you know, the police presence brought down and to kind of reclaim our safe spaces in the neighborhood. Yeah. So I know a lot of our listeners are listening to both of you and thinking, but hey, like a pride event is like, you know, I actually heard uh, next year's uh, World Pride in New York might have like five million people. Sure. Uh, and you were just talking about safety. Mm-hmm. Uh if you don't have police, how do you keep 5 million people safe? <laughs> I mean, the community has always policed itself for once, for for one thing. Um, so the parade's been happening since the Stonewall. There were no police. There was no barricades. There was no entry fees, you know, for the first couple of decades of the of the parade. And I, I want to just add to, I think it's important when you, when folks ask that question, it's important to start from the place of like, the police do not keep us safe. When you're thinking about safety, the the question that I would, when folks ask, well, how do we keep our, keep each other safe? I would say safe, safe from what and safe for whom? You know, I'm assuming some of the pushback or criticisms that uh, both you, Brandon and Angela receive is, you know, like, oh, like, are you, are you disavowing pride and things like that? Um, and I'm curious, like, what do you say to people who kind of lob those criticisms at you when you're just like, no, like we're not disavowing it. We're actually, we're trying to make pride better and more inclusive and and get back to what we believe it was. Yeah. I mean, I I would, I would ask folks to really think back to the history of, of what we know as pride. Um, Think about Marsha P. Johnson, think about Sylvia Rivera, think about the groups, Um, even, even down to organizations like ACT UP, we're really like the foundation of the modern LGBTQ uh, movement uh, for, for uh, access to quality healthcare. Um, I think there is a reality that, um, and this goes back to, I think what Brandon was saying to also about, you know, people wanting to police one another, wanting to enforce, this is how you should show up for pride. This Mm -hmm. is what a, a pride celebration looks like. This is what it means to, you know, celebrate. And it's like, actually, Part of, I know for myself, part of being queer is about being able to shape and define and live my life in the way that I choose and that I identify that that's what's prideful to me. And so to say that this is, you know, when we, in the, uh, uh, in 2017, when we, uh, shut down the, the pride parade here in DC, you know, there's a video of a guy and he's saying like, um, this is not for you. This is not your time. <laughs> Wait. Uh, actually, this is for 
for a, we are who this is for. Like, and if it's not for us, then we're going to make it for us. Mm-hmm. Also, we've gotten a lot of criticism about, you know, people wanting to party and have fun and have it be a celebration and not have it be like a mopey political event or whatever. And I really take offense at that because, because I think there is so much to celebrate within our, within our struggle and within our our political struggle. And there's so much love and community that can be found um, together as, as a group, you know, fighting these structures that are oppressing us. And I really, it's very disturbing, I think, when I hear people, you know, try to say that somehow the political aspect of that we can separate ourselves from the from our politics or we can separate ourselves from our struggle because it is all of this, all of pride is rooted in the struggle and it continues to this day. So I think so by saying that they're trying to they're they're basically weeding out and kind of marginalizing these groups and these communities and these activists, which I think is is really upsetting, especially on Pride, especially like in next year in New York, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So, you know, I think more than ever, we need to we need to keep it political and highlight our struggle. I also want to say that if your version of having a fun party weekend is clapping while Bank of America (laughs) and clapping as models of drones and armed police officers walk by, then we don't have the same definition of party. Exactly. And I want to say that, you know, I've been either reporting from or involved in many different kinds of protests and direct actions in my life around abortion and war and and really, you know, issues that inflame people's political views. And I've never seen the kind of backlash that we got from when we mm. blocked the Wells Fargo, mm. uh, Lockheed Martin and MPD contingents at the Pride Parade where men were getting up in my face like lips trembling, wow. screaming, calling me a little girl, Oof. saying that this wasn't for me, throwing drinks at us, throwing cans full of beer at us. Oh, no. uh, it, it kind of severed whatever sort of impulse I might have had towards solidarity with those people. And um, it was a really formative and radicalizing experience for me where I realized like this quote unquote movement or community that I thought might have been united really was not and probably never has been. And um, I didn't feel sorry about ruining those people's pride for (laughs) saying that they couldn't clap while a bunch of like Chipotle. (laughs) What do y'all what do y'all think that that fragility on display and what you just described is about? Like, why why is it so sensitive for people who are upset by this? Like, what what is what are we what is what are y'all like activating? From my perspective, I think it's a lot of it has to honestly do with race. I think the truth is in that I experience this mostly from cis uh, white gay men, and there is no awareness of sort of, I don't even want to say levels of gradients, but just awareness of, of, of power and privilege and how that shows up in different ways. And so to be confronted with the reality that there, there are, there is oppression amongst the oppressed communities mm-hmm. and that you, white gay man, may actually be benefiting, not that you're necessarily the quote unquote oppressor, but you may be benefiting from this um, access to to privilege that others in this community that you thought you you were aligned with do not. And I think that it's not it, it, the the goal of the No Justice, No Pride actions in 2017 was to not rip anybody of their identity. It was all, but did it was to shock people into our reality, the reality that queer and trans people of color live with every single day, all the time. We're not really having the same conversation. So I really do think there's a lot to do about race and it has a lot to do about 
privilege and uh, white gay men especially being uncomfortable with the reality of their level of access to privilege within the context of the community and what and also putting that responsibility in their laps. Right. Mm. You like Mm -hmm. this is we are asking you to act, to show up for this. Those of us that you say you're in community with. So both of you talked about like the importance of uh, re, you know, it's literally the word reclaiming uh, these big pride celebrations. I think when I think about a lot of the issues we've been talking about, my reaction to the Bank of America float has been to just not participate in those prides anymore and to do alternative prides. Um, here in New York, we have the Radical Fairy Drag March. We have a Dyke March, Trans March. There are other venues for pride celebrations. Why is it important to engage with like sort of the big pride instead of, you you know, finding our own spaces that are maybe more accommodating. Sure. I mean, I think it's very important for us to remember and recognize our history. I think a lot of us feel it's very important to, um, to, in reclaiming pride to, to kind of like, to not abandon it, you know, and the fact that I am a member of ACT UP New York and, um, you know, we use the, the parade every year as like a way to distribute uh, safer sex information, you know, to tens, uh, thousands of people. We don't want to we don't want to leave. We don't want to have to leave the parade. We'd like to be able to support it. We'd like to reach the community and different uh, groups in the community and distribute safer sex info, which is not available in a lot of places in the community. So I think we're really reluctant to like to give it up and kind of cede that space to the supposed leaders of the movement. We'd rather reclaim it, uh, make it how we want it to be um, so that it can reflect all of New York City. Yeah. And we I'll just add. So we talked about this quite a bit in D.C., um, myself and the other uh, core organizers. Um, and I think our response was to do both and uh, or mm. to say yes and <laughs> um, we uh, organized um, alternative events, um, alternative marches, alternative social events, gatherings. Then we also did the disruption. And I think that it's important to do to add the disruption to, to confront these institutions or these establishments um, within the, the community, because that's where the resources are. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing is in D.C., Capital Pride is used as a proxy by DC politicians mm-hmm. as the voice of the LGBT community. So the DC politicians often say, well, Capital Pride, you know, was invited as at this event or Capital Pride signs up on this thing or, you know, uh, they, they will go to the leadership of Capital Pride to have conversations about what the LGBTQ community in DC needs. So these people are speaking on, path, on, on behalf of us. They're co-opting whether or not, it. I mean, they're trying ex- to co-opt it. Right. And even in an official or unofficial capacity, And so if they are going to be if the politicians are if they're going to be speaking on behalf of the of the of the community or be um, seen as a spokesperson, then they need to be accountable to the community and they and they should be heard. And it does matter where they're putting the resources and how they're deciding um, which groups go in the front of the parade and uh, which groups get resources or don't have to pay or do have to pay, et cetera. And which uh, and, and, and it also does matter what statement the pride uh, parade is making to the rest of the community. This is an, an issue of crisis around the country, and we have a lot of work to do as a community if we're going to be unified, if we're going to be a, a, a actual community that shows up for all of us. There is quite a bit of education to do, and I think that a lot of it does really root itself in some of the issues around race and class and privilege that need to be parsed out in our, in our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you both so much for 
talking about this with us. And I'm really looking forward to hear what our listeners have to say. Y'all can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Thank you so much, Brandon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find out more about Reclaim Pride too at reclaimprideNYC.org. Great. And thank you, Angela. Thank y'all so much. So in keeping with our theme of queer radicalism, we're structuring this next segment around a game we're calling half-jokingly Ratter than thou. Um, I'll toss out two items or concepts, and then we'll have a little kiki over which is quote unquote more radical. So, first up, getting gay married or living in a sort of group home collective situation? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else suggested LLC. Is that a thing that people. I think that was you, Brian. It was. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I, that's the the question of how do uh, poly groupings uh, pr- protect themselves legally. One of the only ways that I'm aware of, and our listeners may know others, but the one that I'm aware of is that you form an LLC oh, uh, wow. for property wow. ownership purposes, at least. Um, and I, I do know some poly folks who have done that. Very. I thing. love the idea of like. Not only are we making ourselves square and assimilating, we're forming a fucking business. Yeah. <laughs> this is a business. I think it's sort of radical to like to use the law for things that it wasn't intended for. Like there oh, is some yes. there's something cool in that to me, but that's all I'll say. Uh, that's a different discussion. So I've been thinking about this a lot because I am getting mm-hmm. married next year. So selfishly, I'm going to say that marriage is the more radical thing to do. <laughs> um, but honestly, the concept of marriage feels incredibly radical to me if you think of it in the terms of you know i'm committing my life to this person and my support to this person and my care to this person for our lives no matter where our lives take us when i think about the depth of that act which doesn't necessarily need the legal imprimatur on it that feels incredibly radical And the act of planning a wedding has reconvinced (laughs) me how radical it is because of all the things we can't do. Like, I had a very strange moment the other day when I was writing about the term wife and the idea of marriage for a Slate series that Brian edited on Passing, where I realized, you know, I was thinking about the things that my parents might expect from me or ways that I can um, embrace family tradition in a way that feels queer and authentic to me. And I was like, oh, I wonder if my parents are disappointed that I'm not getting married in a Catholic church. And then I was like, wait, I can't get married in a Catholic church. Like this whole time I thought that I was choosing not to, but I actually mm-hmm. just can't. And I wouldn't want to. But um, the the conversations that we've also had with people, I mean, I have 75 family members, just aunts, uncles and cousins. I have a very large family. This will be the first gay wedding for so many of them that mm-hmm. it makes me feel uh, you know, I'm so enmeshed in my own communities most of the time where it's absolutely not a strange thing to do to get gay married that whenever I talk to somebody who's not in our group, it feels extremely radical. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm just like hopping out, but no, I, I agree with everything Christina just said <laughs> as somebody who is not getting married in the, you know, in the next year or so to my knowledge. <laughs> to um, your knowledge. <laughs> um, no, but I, yeah, I think there's. Definitely something about um, sort of infiltrating, like you were saying, Brian, like infiltrating an aspect of the law that was 100% not created with you in mind and using that as a, as your own form of protection. And at the same time, there's also something radical, I think, about 
um, you know, actually it's very similar, right? You're now being, you're now able to uh, participate in this institution that for so long uh, you were totally excluded from um, and begin to re-envision what it means and who it speaks to. And, you know, hopefully like generations from now, if we're not all dead from global warming, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's something that will not seem so like, I feel like people are often, uh, you know, it, it's, it can be very nerve wracking to think about like, oh, like getting married and like, where can we get married? And even if you, you know, you, you can get uh, married, uh, everyone in the United States, but still the psychological aspect of having to like come out and then like go to um, a place where you can get married and how will people receive it? Well, you have that one woman, I can't remember where, who was uh, Tim Davis, right? Rejecting licenses (laughs) or whatever. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Like you still have those, uh, those sorts of obstacles. And so there's still something radical to me about um, asserting your right to be able to, to do that. So, yeah, I mean, this whole um, process of, uh, planning a wedding where we're emailing all these people who might be able to cook food for the wedding or, you know, have a space for us to have a party the night before or whatever. I'm constantly always putting in my everything. Me and my partner, Deborah, you know, be like my woman partner because we are gay. Like, because I don't want to get there and have them be like, oh, shit, this is a gay wedding. You know, I mean, because more straight people are using partner these days. So I could be like, hmm, okay. that's true. I'm like, <laughs> so she, and luckily she has a traditionally uh, feminine name. So no one will have to be like, oh, hmm, Alex, like, mm, who is mm. that? So the only thing I want to add to this question quickly, and I actually I say this as someone who is uh, gay married to one of my partners. Um, I think there's like a capitalist critique in there that we, that we like the person, I think everything you guys said about like the personal meaning of marriage to each of us is, is well taken. Uh, but there is, there are people who are listening who would say, you know, getting married is a way of consolidating wealth, uh, and and sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and taking advantage of certain privileges. The more radical thing then would, I think have to be the group home collective, you know, uh, sharing all things, uh, sort Mm -hmm. of situation. Um, but again, this is a case where you've got, it's the frame of reference, right? So I think in the personal case that Christina and uh, Brandon articulated so beautifully, like that, that it can feel very radical, but then I think maybe in the, larger uh socioeconomic uh frame Mm -hmm. it it isn't but yeah yeah okay so the next one so born this way era lady gaga versus a stars born era lady gaga brian let's let's go ahead and start with you oh my gosh uh please keep your response to 30 minutes yeah (laughs) well i have to say i i actually uh i wrote my senior thesis in ethnomusicology about lady gaga so i have a lot of wow (laughs) i have a lot of feelings about her (laughs) um and that was actually before born this way that was like you know just like fame monster lady gaga Um, what was your thesis uh, oh, well, I was just writing about how she constructed her queer appeal. Uh, Christina, Ooh, thank you for asking. I'd love to I read would love that. To read so, that. yeah, all the all the live reading the next episode. For sure. <laughs> An extra. Uh, all, all the things that she drew on to sort of construct herself after abandoning Stephanie Germanotta. Um, oh, gosh. I think early Lady Gaga is probably a little more radical. Um, I think she was trying... She, like smuggled a lot of queer and you can have feelings about this one way or another, but she definitely smuggled a lot of queer sensibility into like mainstream pop. Um, and I think challenged a lot of folks that way and, um, you know, expanded, uh, 
the possibilities for what like a pop star could do or look like at least um in in the aughts um i think born this or a star is born era lady gaga is seems to be much quieter and kind of trying to do this like learning a new art form thing in terms of acting and and you know the the joanne album was a little was interesting i think but a little less boundary pushing so uh i think yeah i'd have to go with the earlier one what do y'all think brandon i know you have feelings about this too (laughs) as our resident pop lover um correct um so i'm gonna lean toward what brian was saying um this time and part of that is because i can draw a line from what uh born this way era lady gaga was doing um to the sorts of pop stars we see today where Mm. brian like you were saying she smuggled a lot into sort of uh top 40 uh pop music and i think in very easy ways you can draw a radical line between her and people we have today like kim petras who i've heard described you know a, a trans pop star um who people have described her music as 2010 era Katy perry uh which i think is 100 percent correct right like she has a song called uh hillside boys with a line that's like um hillside boys when you say my name uh, when you call my name, uh, my heart sparkles like champagne, which is the most <laughs> saccharine so thing beautiful. in the world. I kind of wish you would sing that for <laughs> yeah. us instead of just spoken word poetry. When, when Brian <laughs> reads his uh, his thesis, I'll also we'll do a little karaoke session. Perfect. Next time too. But, uh, um, but I think that's one of the things I love, and you know, it's getting to what we were talking about, which is uh, you know, trailblazing and opening up what we consider to be um, radical pop, and kind of getting rid of the notion that there is a quote unquote queer sound. Um, but those are my thoughts. Mm. I know this isn't how this game is supposed to be played, but I want to say neither. Mm. Mm. So that feels like the radical answer to me. So. <laughs> thank you. A Star is Born, like I said, for all the things I hated about it, it really made a Lady Gaga fan out of me. I thought she was brilliant. I haven't been able to stop listening to the songs on the soundtrack that were her hers in the movie after she did her transformation into a pop star which are supposed to be conspicuously bad and sell out but <laughs> i are so good um i highly recommend that as part of your gay agenda oh wait are we listening to something why do you look so good in those jeans why do you come on This is not, not like me. Why you keep on texting me like that? Got other things I need my mind on, yeah. Other responsibilities. This is not, not like me. I said this on the waves, but the fact that they put the word texting in that song was totally hitting you over the head with like, this is supposed to be a dumb song, but... I love it so much. <laughs> anyway, I've, I still don't think her music is particularly radical, even at the time. Even, you know, I think her image and the spectacle and uh, showmanship that she brought to her pop was radical. I don't – perhaps I'm not enough of a Lady Gaga scholar like you, Brian, <laughs> uh, to understand the true radicalism of her music. And honestly, I've always chafed against the idea of – choosing this straight ally as a gay icon just because she put, you know, the word transgender in her song or something like that and performed for gay people. Um, this is probably me not understanding gay male culture, but the, <laughs> the the choosing of all of these straight women as gay icons 
annoys me. Um, mm. yeah, that is a I mean, that is a subject for an entire other episode. <laughs> I'm really excited for all of our listeners to be provoked by me saying that. But yeah, I think uh, I almost feel like just to be contrarian, I should say that the that a star is born Lady Gaga is more radical because it was shocking for me to see her hmm. in her, you know, no makeup, which Bradley Cooper loved to, you know, wipe off her face because he loves to see the real her and letting her sort of Italian New York roots show. Um it was beautiful. I loved to watch it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not going to put her on my radical spectrum at all. Also, I think important point of clarification. Um, I'm pretty sure Lady Gaga is bi. Um, I didn't know that. I just looked it up. Because wow, I just I erased been, her. Well, I, I've been called out uh, for that before. And so I was like, let me look it up. So I literally only looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, but it says as a bisexual artist. Um However, I'm I think rolling my eyes a little bit at that because <laughs> like, okay, cool. She technically identifies as bi. But well, I, like, I think like your point like still gets at sort of like the mainstreaminess of um, sort of her aesthetics and her artistry, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. But thought I'd throw it out there. Thank you. <laughs> What's next? Using the term pansexual or queer. You're going to make us speak on the record for this, aren't you? I am. <laughs> Why don't Brian you start? go first? You haven't gone oh, no. first yet. <laughs> yeah, you go first. Exactly. That's fair. Um, so oh, I'm going to maybe cop out a little bit by just saying that um, I think it's either. It's both. Um, I I, th- <laughs> I think the radical thing about using queer, though, for me is that, which is, you know, I um, relate more to that term is... Um, it's reappropriating this term that was so, you know, it was so derisive, uh, right? Um, and I think similar to marriage and, you know, the other topics we've talked about, but the idea of reclaiming something or, uh, making some, making something that has been used in such an abusive way toward a certain group of people. Um, and now that's something that people, refer to each other and themselves with with um with affection and respect and it doesn't mean anything to me that's that's a really powerful um that's a really powerful and bold move i don't particularly see these two things as opposing categories i do think there's something about pansexuality as a way of life that seems radical to me because there's i can't really think of a better way to assert the artificiality of gender um, and a gender binary than to just not have any gender preferences in terms of your sexual partners. You know, that's not the way I live my life. But Mm -hmm, I do mm -hmm. think that the concept of pansexuality and the fact that there are people who identify that way is really cool and probably and probably forces a lot of straight people's minds to be blown. Um, Queerness as a label has always struck me as wonderfully political and radical uh, as opposed to gay just because I think it means a little bit more than or it signifies something that is broader than sexual orientation. It's a worldview and a thinking about gender that I think gay and lesbian, while I really like those terms as political terms too, uh, doesn't always encompass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, if I were... I mean, I, you know, I, I, I identify as, as gay and then certainly under the very general queer umbrella. Um, but in terms of, uh, pansexual, I think, I think I like Christina's point best. I, I was just listening to you say that. And I think, I think there is more, 
of a destabilizing or like challenging critique built into that that terminology uh that's different from other terms and i know that there's there's you know a whole long uh standing debate in the sort of bi community about about these words um and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to speak on that too much because i'm not part of it but there is something about yeah removing sort of gender or any particular gender entirely Mm-hmm. from the framing that is that does i mean it even i would say it blows my mind a little bit right as as a monosexual it it definitely makes me a little uncomfortable in like a good way yeah and i i would say that if any of our pansexual listeners would like to write in and uh opine on that or correct us definitely email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com i look forward to hearing from you we're all ears and so our last one for the game is buying a gay-ass cake from a homophobic cake shop or going down the street to a gay-owned shop. Shop with an extra P and an E. Yes. Yeah. Shop hey. <laughs> that's, that's the only gay way to do it. I love this question because, you know, it's very topical. Uh, we're, we're coming off of the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, decision earlier this year. I mean, assuming that the gay, like, I guess we're assuming that the the straight shop or homophobic cake shop would make the cake, right? Or are we, are we just challenging? I think they would make the cake or they would give you crap about it. I guess okay. you would end up with the cake. You'd end up somehow. with the cake regardless. I think I was thinking I was going to say that it is it is radical to do the protest thing. But actually, in my heart, I am someone who just thinks we should only support other queer people in businesses and like and keep it in community. And and I still think we're at a stage of of uh, our evolution where that's important. So I'm going to say going down the street to the gay shop and getting and, and patronizing your own uh, people. Yeah, same. I'm a total uh, queer separatist. Obviously, I don't think businesses should be allowed to discriminate, but for something like retail, where it's not like they're, you know, trying to withhold housing or medical care from you or something, I would say 100% go somewhere else instead of forcing a homophobe to make your cake that says, I'm an enormous homosexual. (laughs) So I think I'm way too petty to turn down being obnoxious. (laughs) Um, so I think I a hundred percent would go and bother a homophobe until they give me a cake and then probably try to return the cake and then give that money to the gay home <gasps> shop down the street. Ooh. Uh, can you return a cake? Power move. It, like I'll literally buy it and say, no, I don't want it. Or let them make it and then I'll say, I don't want it. Oh um, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. it's, it's, you pay for it when you pick it up, not yeah. when you order it. Yeah. And then I'm just like, actually, I'm going to take my, my business to, to the gays down the road. That's a really good um, idea. Uh, I think that's what I do. That's the solution. That's what <laughs> I we also want to give a plug to a restaurant in New York. I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere in lower Manhattan. It's called Valare. It's an Italian restaurant. And it's my sister and her husband love it. And they are known for making cakes shaped like penises and breasts. It's like mm. a really nice Italian restaurant. But somehow this has nothing to do with uh, queerness or radicalism. But they do make penis and breast cakes. So if that's something that you want for your gay event, forcing them to make those things gay would be an excellent way to do it. At Making this somebody eat penis. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or having them. I think it's like they usually would do it for like you know, a bachelorette party and they'll make this penis cake. But if you did it for your group of gay male friends, 
it would inherently be gay even if it wasn't intended that way. Yeah. yeah. I think this is like petty brain coming out again. And I'd like get it for my wedding strictly <laughs> to make like homophobic uncle have to like <laughs> eat penis cake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh also God. like a Roman to have like a pe- like a giant penis at your celebration of of fertility or whatever. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> true. I'll uh, consider it. Uh, that was it for our game. If our listeners have any thoughts about things that maybe we overlooked, feel free to get in touch with us. Um, but now we're going to move on to our next segment. All right. That's just about it for Outward this week. But before we go, we'd like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. Uh, sticking with our theme, we've all chosen a cultural object or experience that radicalized us in one way or another. Um, so why don't we start with you, Christina? What radicalized you? I've got two. Oh. One is more academic, or at least I encountered it for the first time in an academic context. And that is Sister Outsider, a collection of writings from Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. who is uh, the black lesbian intellectual in my life. Uh, there are so many good pieces in this collection. Um, the one that you might have read in your you know, gender studies 101 classes, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, mm-hmm. sort of a foundational work of intersectional feminism that I still go back to time and time again and learn something new from every time I read it. There's also a great essay about, um, it's called Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power, which is about the revolutionary potential of joy and pleasure and fulfillment in everyday work, which I think if you're involved in any sort of radical political movements is essential to sort of find that pleasure in your work. I also want to recommend the filmography of John Cameron Mitchell, Mm. in particular Short Bus and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm. Um, They're, uh, first of all, just incredibly enjoyable and beautiful and heart-wrenching films to watch. Um, And they also present what I think is a pretty radical vision of gender and sexuality and romantic relationships and family that um, when I first saw them in the 2000s introduced to me a new way of uh, depicting queerness in art and uh, I think was pretty revolutionary at the time and radical at the time and, and still is. And I would highly recommend if you haven't already seen those films to go and watch them. Love short bus. What about you, Brandon? Uh, so I have a book, um, uh, James Baldwin's Another Country Oof. from 1962. Um, and so uh, my partner actually introduced me to that book not long after we had started dating. And he was like, oh, like you quote James Baldwin a lot, but like, have you even read any of his novels? Which is like, I guess, like the nerd equivalent of like, do you even lift? <laughs> um, so I had not. And so I read the book and it just uh, radically uh, changed the way that I think about a lot of things. Um, you know, in that book, he's dealing with uh, black rage and white fragility and nationalism and homosexuality, um, all these different concepts and um, issues and hot topics that we talk about today and think about today. Um, and he was... Uh, parsing them in this very complex, intricate novel. Um, And I have a quote um, from it that I will read. That's one of my favorites. So it's by Ida, who's uh, one of the characters. She's a black woman speaking to Cass, who is a white woman. Um, And she says, they keep you here because you're black while they go around jerking themselves off with all the jazz about the land of the free and the home of the brave. And they want you to jerk yourself off with the same music too. only keep your distance. 
Some days, honey, I wish I could turn myself into one big fist and grind this miserable country to powder. Some days, I don't believe it has a right to exist. Now, you've never felt like that. And Vivaldo's never felt like that. Vivaldo didn't want to know my brother was dying because he doesn't want to know that my brother would still be alive if he hadn't been born black. Um, and, you know, I feel like that's a sentiment that you easily could hear today. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, Baldwin these days is um, very much becoming a more mainstream figure with um, uh, with the movie coming out of, um, based on one of his novels next month um, with uh, the documentary last year. Um, and so for me, it's been... I've been actually very happy about the fact that we're investigating so or revisiting so much of Baldwin's work as opposed to just sort of, you know, the quote unquote classics like Giovanni's yeah. Room and stuff like that. But his his novels that are very intersectional in the way that they deal with um, with race and gender and, you know, all those sorts of things that we talk about on this podcast. Brian, what do you have? That's so wonderful. Um, so I have another book. It is uh, called The Queen's Throat, Opera, Homosexuality, and the Mystery of Desire. And it's by mm. Wayne Kostenbaum. Um, Brian. I, <laughs> I read that book, or I was assigned that book, actually, in a class in college. And um, it's, a, it's a really hard book. His writing in general is sort of hard to pin down, but it's um, because he's a poet uh, at heart, I think, but he's a, also a cultural critic, queer, uh, sort of a, a f- one of the, I'd say one of the founders of queer theory uh, in a way. Um, and this book is all about about opera and the connection between um, opera divas in particular and and gay men, um, among other things. And uh, what it what it did to me was show me for the first time that that sort of gay sensibility and aesthetics could be like a serious intellectual mode. Um, the, these are th- you know he's writing about camp and writing about uh, uh, you mentioned uh, why do why do gay men like straight women so much uh, like uh, <laughs> Christina earlier like that's what this book is about in some ways and so it, it, it's a serious it takes seriously these sort of gay um, cultural traditions and uh, and and sort of modes of of, of criticism and thinking uh, that we that a lot of us do naturally but but you know the, the larger culture has said you know something like camp isn't serious right um and and in this book he takes those things very seriously and and writes really beautifully about them um and so reading that book uh taught me that that was possible and that i could pursue uh some of that that in my own writing um Uh so for any any baby gays out there or older gays who who want that kind of thing uh check out wayne maybe i should read that so i can better understand (laughs) you and your culture (laughs) sure i I think that's why brandon decided to do his introduction like that yeah (laughs) it's a great place it's a great place to start for sure all right that's our episode for today thank you so much for listening and as always we would love to get your feedback or your ideas for topics we should pursue and your advice questions you can send those to outward podcast at slate.com or find us on facebook or twitter at slate outward Thank you so much to Daniel Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Slate Podcast Senior Managing Producer June Thomas is the reason for our season. (laughs) Thank you to the Making Gay History podcast, whose fourth season comes out later this month. And the trailer is currently available on their feed. If you like Outward, we beseech you to subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review it in a really nice way so that other people can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on November 21st with an episode on Queer Family. Until then, check out the Radicalism Package on Slate.com in the Outward section. Ta-ta, Brian. Bye. Bye.
Bye, Brandon. Ciao for now, Christina. Thanks for listening and stay gay. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.